Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Alison Rudd of The Times and by Daniel Storey, the author and columnist. Let's start with the numbers. Liverpool are unbeaten at Anfield for 1,002 days. They've won 91 points out of 93. They're 16 points clear with a game in hand. 30 more points and they'll be champions for the first time in 30 years. Now the qualities. Consistency, obviously. Leadership, flair, innovation, perfectionism. I suppose the question is, Ali, are we seeing the start of the dynasty here? Well, it's, it's interesting that, that that is what people talk about when they talk about Liverpool. They don't just talk about them breaking that 30-year hiatus. Oh, my goodness, how could they have gone 30 years and not have their hands on the Premier League title? It seems so counterintuitive for a club of Liverpool's stature and history. And that, in some ways, ought to be enough, shouldn't it, that they're going to actually do it. But it's, I think they're, they're definitely going to do it. And therefore, people who love the game are thinking not in terms of, well, they'll all be very relieved on Merseyside, won't they? They're thinking this has to mean more. They've, they've worked since Klopp arrived. They've been working towards it. And I think we can, we can see how they've improved, how cleverly they've plugged the gaps that they had, how it's all come together. We know what a clock system is, you know, the ownership model. We understand the ethos of, of the support and the club and so on. So it, it feels all, not irrelevant, but almost irrelevant that they're going to win the title. What seems to really matter is, is this the start of something that will surpass all else, will mean that other clubs have to be fearful of and try to copy? Does it mean that in this day and age you can't win the title without, without making it part of something bigger? And I suppose it would be a great insult and disappointment if it was to be something like the Leicester miracle, which was a blip, really, a one-off, and no-one expected them to be able to, to build a dynasty, as you say. But if all the ingredients, because all the ingredients are there for Liverpool, I think 
in some ways, it has to be a dynasty. Mm. It, it, it's interesting, and I think it should be incredibly flattering to Jurgen Klopp and everyone at the club that that's almost your first question, isn't it? The word dynasty, does, is it going to happen? Yeah, because if you look at it, Klopp's, the value of Klopp's squad was 380 million when he took over. It's now valued at 1.8 billion. So that gives you an idea. You, you basically, we're seeing here a super club mm-hmm. re-emerge almost, aren't we? Yeah, and I think we're, we're seeing a club that probably, maybe slightly counterintuitively, have, have become so big and so great so quickly because they came from such a low ebb, because Klopp was able to effectively rebuild from scratch and the club was able to put all their eggs in his basket and... and understandably so, given what he's achieved since then. I think the fact that he was able to create that framework himself is a huge part of this. And it, and as Ali says, that leads us to believe that as long as he wants to stay, and yes, he's five years into a job that he normally considers a seven-year a seven-year cycle of his, his management. So he did that at Mainz, he did that at Dortmund. Two more years of this, and Liverpool could be very much established as the dominant club in the Premier League. And potentially in Europe, given that they already have ticked off a final and a, a Champions League victory in the last two years. So, yeah, they, they have everything in place. And I think they have everything in place because the club saw that they had very little option other to do that. They were very fortunate to appoint Klopp at the time and they've understood that the thing to do is to let him do exactly what he wants. Yeah, we, you know, we look at that, that squad and we can see within the team or within the, the group natural leaders. Henderson, Van Dyke, Wijnaldum, you can keep rolling off players' names. But let's look a bit deeper below the surface. What about recruitment and research, the two R's? Yes. Is that where they've got an edge? I'd, I think a lot of clubs have good research departments. The key, actually, is the longevity of them. And at Liverpool... The current setup behind the scenes has been going on since before Klopp arrived and were part of getting Klopp appointed. About 2012, wasn't it, when they all started to set it up? Exactly. So you can see a holistic approach there that they've um, they've employed people, mathematicians, statisticians, proper scientists, people who... An astrophysicist, in there. Indeed, people who, who claim openly they don't watch football, <laughs> which is... <laughs> You mentioned counterintuitive. That's really <laughs> counterintuitive, that you're uh, influential at a football club, but you don't watch the matches. You watch the data and you, you work out that um, Klopp is a brilliant manager, even though his final year in Germany was disappointing because the stats show he was doing everything right. Mm. So if that manager, Klopp, is employed on partly... I think, I think mainly he was employed by Liverpool because they, they got his personality and they felt he was the perfect fit as an individual with his passion and approach to the game. They felt he was the perfect fit for the club. But it was also partly because statistically he, he wasn't on a downward curve. The stats showed he was on an upward curve. Mm. So they appointed him. So that means, obviously, Klopp's going to like this department, isn't it? Because they, they're part of the reason he's got the job. So he buys in a little bit. And I think probably, because as I say, um, most clubs have stats departments and analysis. It's about the balance. So if Klopp can say, say openly, yeah, I use, I use the st- stats and I listen to them, but it's, it's often usually my intuition 
and my coaching. And it's about getting that balance right. Any club that over relies, which Southampton did for a bit, over relies on their black box room, mm. which does analysis, analysis. And you get a few hits and you think we've cracked it. That's what we do. We appoint managers and we buy players and promote from within purely on our stats and forget about the, you know, the influence of coaching and personality and the dynamics of all that go into making a great team. And then you get a blip, then it goes horribly wrong. It's about getting the balance right. And I think that's probably what's gone so well at Anfield is that the balance between the geeks and the manager and the owners and the players, it's just about right. Mm. Talking of the players, as I mentioned earlier on about perfectionism. That's something that really shines through. Probably, and it's embodied by Jordan Henderson. Mm. You know, I got a bit of stick on social media when I said about six weeks ago that I, at the moment he's my footballer of the year. Can we put into context, Dan, how well you think he's done this season? Well, extraordinarily well, obviously. Because the tendency, I think, with brilliant teams is to look at both ends of the pitch. And there are pretty obvious pillars of Liverpool at fullback, at central defence, in goal, any number of those front three. But if, for example, we take the game against Manchester United, it's one in midfield. It's one because Jordan Henderson and Gini Wijnaldum press perfectly and organise the press without the ball and dictate the tempo of the game when they have it. You know, when Liverpool need to recycle possession quickly, when they need to attack a team quickly, they do that. They, the passes are they're penetrative and they're quick. They're quick off the mark. And you could see sometimes when Henderson got the ball in the second half, he was holding out his arms and saying, everyone calm down, we need to slow the pace down because Manchester United are getting into this. It's becoming a little bit chaotic. It, that that organisation of the game, when the game is going on at 100 miles an hour around you is so much harder than, than us amateurs think. It's incredibly difficult to do without losing your head, and particularly from a player who has lost his head in those circumstances in the past, hasn't always been like this. He is a very humble man, and he will, he will give Klopp all the credit for that, but Klopp will hand it right back to him because you know, this was a player who Brendan Rodgers was happy to allow to leave, was happy to sell him, um, basically told him that Fulham were interested and he was happy if he left. To then reinvent yourself in a context of everyone around you flourishing is, is a huge testament to him. Mm. They're at uh, Wolves on Thursday, uh, Ali. Is this the last big test? Because if you look at the next couple of months anyway, February and March, the fixture list is pretty doable. Let's look at Wolves and the threat that they will pose. This will be their 40th game of the season. Are they one of the great unheralded success stories of that season? Um, well, I hope they're not unheralded, because I'd like to herald them. Because <laughs> someone was saying, oh, they had a few, a few bob in their betting account on Saturday. What should they do with it? And they were looking through the fixtures. And I said, Southampton v Wolves. I said, surely, surely Wolves are going to be absolutely exhausted. They've just been through you know, a, a League Cup tie, a, a FA Cup replay. They're, they've had all their, as you say, I mean, the games are just coming thick and fast. They're, they're probably going to be tired compared to a team that are on the up, don't have many distractions other than the fact they've finally clicked. Surely that's going to be a Southampton win. And it did look like it. And the fact that they were able to re-energise so completely after going two goals behind and mentally not not be deterred by the fact that although they play quite well they were two goals behind to 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 just to just go for the jugular with with energy and it's it is i think the most impressive thing of all is that they're a team that we enjoy watching because uh, of 
their pattern of play is, is quite distinctive, diagonal ball, diagonal ball, a lot of pace, a lot of counter-attacking. They're a bit like a mini Liverpool sometimes when you look at them. And, and you think, well, poor Wolves, they can't possibly sustain that with, with the Europa League as well. And yet they can. It's, it's and a phenomenal. small squad. A small squad. It's phenomenal what they've done. So, I mean, it, it would be wrong if they go unheralded because that is, it, it goes against everything you hold about. We say, you know, footballers play too much. They're all getting injured. You can't play that style of football in every match. Somehow they keep it, they keep it going. And yes, you're absolutely right. It will be a big test. Liverpool. I think Liverpool will win, but it's it's a game they'll have to try very hard to do. Mm. So, and they then go on to Shrewsbury in the FA Cup. Dan, do you expect this to be a you know, a reverb of uh, Klopp's kids? They're all going to turn up again. Yeah, absolutely, I do because everything is going right, and we saw last season in the FA Cup that Jurgen Klopp picked a, a team of kids and was not entirely disappointed when they were knocked out by Wolves. But the longer they go through the domestic competitions, the long the more chances those kids get. So they've got a, you know, they've got a, a, a rallying cry from the manager to say, go and prove me, go and show that I don't need to buy any more players in the summer. You know, Curtis Jones, show me that you can belong in this midfield when one of them is no longer ready to carry on. When James Milner eventually moves on, if Adam Lalana leaves, show me that you're ready to step up. Show me that I don't need to go and spend 30, 40 million on a replacement. So they have that motivation. What which player wouldn't? Try their absolute utmost to get be part of that title-winning squad. And you know, jo Curtis Jones on the bench yesterday. He will want to lead that team in the FA Cup. And yes, there comes a point in time when some of them will, will feel they need more minutes than they're getting in those domestic competitions. But for now, why wouldn't you want to be part of it? Absolutely. Mm. And I suppose it's diametrically opposed in terms of mood, Ali, to Manchester United at the moment. Now they've got a Burnley on Wednesday. Sean Dyche has just had his 300th game, league game in charge of Burnley, will provide the sort of test that United, you might suspect, would fail. Is that fair? Yeah, it, yeah it's not unfair. I think there was a lot of um, uh, mild optimism ahead of United's game at Anfield that because they'd got the draw at Old Trafford against Liverpool, uh, and also there's this, there's this thing at the moment that United are better against the big teams. They struggle to break down teams that are fairly defensive and they really need a, a counter-attack and to use their pace. And a lot of that is built around Marcus Rashford, who is now out of the picture. So it's going to be intriguing to see what Solskjaer does because, as we saw against Liverpool, they weren't rubbish against Liverpool at all, but they you could see how it, it, they were carrying on with a system they would have played it hadn't Rashford been fit. They don't. They don't have him. They don't have him. They don't have his pace and his clinical ability to, to, to finish moves off. So that you you ought to say, well, adapt then. Try and play through the middle a bit more. You know, you're Manchester United. Your squad's expensive. You can do this. But there's there's. I don't think there's any evidence that against a team like Burnley, they've got the patience and ability to to move through the pitch and dominate. And it, it, could, it could be quite a dour affair, actually, to be quite honest. Mm. With Rashford, what's the impact of his injury? We're talking probably three months. Well, it's, it's huge for Manchester United. He has been the, maybe not the only ray of light, but certainly the, the most obvious ray of light in a season in which he has somehow, and it's a huge credit to him, managed to take himself out of the, the pretty wretched noise around him, around the club, 
and carry that attack on his shoulders. You know, Anthony Martial is is a good player, but he's been nowhere near Rashford's level this season. Daniel James is a good prospect, but he's been nowhere near Rashford's level this season. He has scored regularly, and every time it feels as if when he's come in for some criticism, he's answered those critics. So it's huge. It's no, it's no coincidence to my mind that he was injured well, the injury was made more severe by the fact that Solskjaer picked him in the FA Cup against Wolves, even when he knew he was injured, because he realised, this is my big hope. I need to win a trophy this season if the board are going to stick with me. And if I'm going to win a trophy, I need Marcus Rashford. So that's a, you know, that's a, a compliment to him, but it won't feel like much at one at the moment. Yeah, but because... it's backfired twice, that, hasn't exactly, it? It's yeah. backfired physically, mm. because he's now out for longer than he would have been had he not played. Also, by bringing him on when he was not fit... Solskjaer is telling the team, mm. I've only got him, we really need him, mm. and now they don't have him, psychologically, that's not good. And has he also, in that moment, signalled his shortcomings as a manager? Possibly. I think I, it shows a slight desperation, and I think that desperation comes from, as you say, they need to, I mean, they need to win something. Mm. And they're not going to, not even anywhere near challenging for the title or making life difficult for the title challenges. So there are clubs that when they're in that that sort of, you know, post-Ferguson, when they've been in those troughs, at least mm. they've brought through cups. Mm. So I think he is under huge pressure. It's hard, it's hard. With hindsight, I think he wouldn't have done it. He didn't know. But yes, it smacks of desperation and that's not good for his CV. Mm. So will we see that desperation reflected in the transfer market in the next 10 days or so? It's it's classic 2019-2020 Manchester United. It's it's a club who are now going to be forced, if they do act, it will be through reaction rather than any sort of proaction. There's no sort of long-term planning there. You know, every, Anyone, pretty much anyone at the start of the season could look at that and say, Romelu Lukaku didn't have a good season last season, but he was their main centre-forward and they were losing him. And Herrera wasn't his best last season, but they were losing a central midfielder. So to to be in this situation where Andreas Pereira, who is a he's a trier, but he's not got anywhere near enough quality to be commanding a position as either. You know, he went to Valencia last season, played as a winger, it didn't really work out. He came back to Manchester United, started as a defensive midfielder, it didn't really work out. He's playing as a number ten against Liverpool yesterday. That's that's desperate in itself, and it just shows that the club are being forced to react because when they do react, they end up paying a huge premium for players that they didn't necessarily plan on having. And I've said this on this show before, but the last player they signed who was an unequivocal success, there's two, I think, David De Gea in 2011-12 and Zlatan Ibrahimovic for one season. That's it. You know, Harry Maguire yesterday bought for £80 million and made to look pretty ordinary, to be honest, against Virgil van Dijk, who Liverpool planned for but and cost less. Even De Gea, that, there's still that element of softness with him, isn't there? There is, because he's playing, in, I think, playing in front of a defence that offers absolutely no confidence. The, the cast regularly changes, the performances lurch horribly from you know, one extreme to the other, and he, he looks like a goalkeeper playing with no confidence. He doesn't look like he trusts himself because he doesn't trust what's in front of him, and that's what happens with, with even elite goalkeepers. Mm. Let's look, Ali, if we could, at two clubs, Arsenal and Chelsea. Now, in the Premier League, they play on Tuesday night. In the Women's Super League, they played on Sunday. Terrific performance by, by Chelsea, winning 4-1. Just dwell on that, if we can, just for a second, because I think it was such a significant result in the women's season. Emma Hayes, as a coach, over 200 games there now, 
What are the principles that she espouses, do you think, that could actually be transferable into the men's game? Oh, the fun I mean, she's got the fundamentals right, which is that she... And if you listen to her talk post-match or pre-match, she sounds awfully like the best Premier League male managers because she, she follows the same principles, which is it's all about hard work, it's all about doing your research, it's all about building a connection, <clears throat> excuse me, it's all about... She, she'll build a team and have an ethos, but she's not afraid to say, well, in the game you've highlighted, facing the league leaders and adapting, looking at what, trying to spot potential flaws in a team that's doing really well. So she, she micromanages a fixture very well whilst having an underlying ethos at the club so that anyone playing, most, most, most of the women playing for Chelsea, they love playing for her. That's really important, you know, getting that sense of I'm really lucky in my career that I'm going to be managed by Emma Hayes. And that's the way people think about the best mm. Premier League managers. Often a signing is made because someone wants to work with, with that individual. They feel they'll improve them as a player. And I think anyone who goes to work for Emma knows they'll come out of it at the other end better. She's, she's so good at, at, at player management as well. I've seen her you know, in dialogue with her players. She has that lovely balance of letting you know she knows them really well as people, but she's in charge. It's, it's all very impressive. Mm. And, and you, do, you do wonder, could she flourish in, in, in sort of the pressures where there's more money and attention in the men's game? And of all the people applying their trade now in, in, in women's football, I think she's got to be the number one candidate to do that. Mm. What's your view in technical terms about the women's game, Dan? You know, I, I must admit, you know, I, I didn't watch the Burnley-Leicester game, I watched the, the, the women's game mm. and that to me was a terrific advert for the women's game. You know, what are your views as someone who's steeped in the men's game, mm. looking, looking, looking on in that? Yeah, I mean, I, I covered, lucky enough to cover the, the Women's World Cup last year and I think that the thing that has to be remembered all the time, and it isn't, it isn't patronising. It's a, it's a, it's a, an absolutely valid and crucial asterisk here is that the women's game was banned for fifty years in this country, mm. and you know it's very easy to say yeah, yeah, but the, now it has to stand on its own two feet or whatever. That's a nonsense because for fifty years it was actively banned by a football association who, you know, effectively, <coughs> only sexist reason. Without without that fifty years in the men's game, there's no World Cup '66. There's no, you know, therefore there's no Premier League. Therefore there's no vast rising quality from the '80s to the '90s. So we have to place it into that context. It is still in its, you know, it, it, it is learning to stand on its own two feet, but it is still playing a huge, huge catch up. You've just given me a brilliant idea for a novel about a world <laughs> in which men's football was banned. For 50 years. There and women's go. football was 50-50 split. <laughs> Sorted, aren't we? <laughs> it's like an employment uh, <laughs> isn't it? OK, let's, let's look at um, Tuesday night, Arsenal at Chelsea. Arteta, one win in five. Is his influence overestimated? I was at, I was at Arsenal, the Emirates, on, on Saturday and he was asked about the upcoming game against Chelsea. He was stony-faced about it. This, he didn't look like a man relishing the prospects, I have to say. Chelsea ruined his party, his first home game in charge of the team he loves, Arsenal. They played quite well, actually, mm. Arsenal in that game, but allowed 
they allow Chelsea into it. And Chelsea are not a bullying team at the moment. They're a young team learning, learning their way. Very talented. Very, uh, you know, I like a lot of their players, but they're, le they're learning their own way of game management. And they let, on home turf, they let Chelsea bully them. And so they lost that match. It's, I, I would say with Arteta, he's going to be given time. And it's, that, is, that is actually a significant thing to say, because if you manage to convey as a club, it does not matter what happens, we are giving him time, then, then it'll be okay, because he's not going to try for those, for those short-term fixes, which might mean nothing ultimately. So he's, a, he's still in the process, Arteta, of analysing what he's got, what the problems are, and that it needs a systemic change to get it moving forward. Mm. I'd, I almost don't think he's that interested in, in, a, in, a, in a fantastic, glitzy short-term bounce because he knows it will be meaningless. He's trying to build um, a philosophy and he's not been gushing about the, the team since he's taken over. A lot of what he's been saying has been quite, well, there's a long way to go. I'm trying to instill in them the balance. At the moment, I saw Arsenal against Crystal Palace and then they were far too aggressive. You know, it, it led to Aubameyang getting sent off. They were, they were sort of trying very hard to be the tough team he wants them to be. And then he said afterwards, they've got to get the balance right for that. You can't just go all at tackling here, there and everywhere. You lose discipline. You're, you're, the game management, again, they're not, they're not doing it. And then, and then on Saturday against Sheffield United, if anything, they did go a bit more passive. He need, you know, that, that's a hard thing to fix, the character of somebody. You imagine you saying to me, oh, Ali, I think you're just too soft and nice. I'm going to make you tougher. Take, you're not going to do it in 10 minutes. It, it, it's, a, it's a long process. And I think the only way it works, and they've got this right at Arsenal, the only way it works is if you make sure the players, the fans, the media know he's going to be given time because he needs time. Mm. She is soft and nice, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> um, let's look at, uh, you know, off the, off the back of what Ali said there, trust and patience. Arteta's talking about giving Eddie and Ketia mm. uh, a start uh, against Chelsea. Scouts rave about him that I, that I know. He didn't get anywhere or very rarely got anywhere near the first team at Leeds when he was there. Is this the sort of thing that Arteta can take advantage of? In other words, he's got the scope to... To experiment a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the one argument, I think, for persisting with Unai Emery for as long as they did, even though it was clear to, to all and sundry that it wasn't working and never would, is that it, it with the top four probably out of the question in terms of realistic expectation for the rest of the season, it did give Arteta or whoever came in a very extended period of see what works and use that over the summer. Exactly what has happened to, to Brendan Rodgers last season at Leicester. You know, the season was effectively over when he took over and that was that they gave him almost a, an extended pre-season in, in which he could tinker, in which he could use players like Eddie Nketiah and Bakayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli and he could try these, he could put these young players in positions where they would be tested and they could prove themselves. And if, if they swam rather than sunk, then they can be part of the first-team squad next season. I didn't see this coming with Nketiah, I have to say. I mean, I know he's well-touted, but I thought with, with Aubameyang, Lacazette, Pepe and Martinelli, who is younger than Nketiah and has more experience and did very well when he came in, I thought he would probably go straight back out on loan again. But 
what, what Arteta wants now is a meritocracy. That's what Jurgen Klopp brought in at Liverpool. It was, no one has a right to be in this team. Just because I've signed Fabinho or Cater or Oxlade-Chamberlain doesn't mean they'll be in the team straight away. They have to prove it. And that really is the only way that Arsenal can move forward. If, if, if Ozil has no more, for example, has no more right to be in the team than Bakayo Saka or Gabriel Martinelli, players have to earn that. Good on him for giving them the chance to do so. Well, so Niketa's really interesting, actually. I'm glad you brought him up because Arteta said a week ago he was not going to let any short-term thinking about Aubameyang's suspension or injuries or anything influence him. He really felt he wanted to assess Niketia and, and, and he, he was hinting he felt his progress would be better served to go back on loan. He needs regular play and he'd been disappointed to, as you say, not as much as he should have I think he was going to go to Bristol City, I think. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But it, it was, it's, it, it's been all about how do we give him game time. And, and, and so a week ago, they were, they were, he was not going to be part of Arteta's plans. But he's now saying, oh, I saw him in training because he's an infectious personality, mm. apparently. He's, you know, he's a great bloke, really keen, willing to learn. He's seen him in training. He likes the way he's integrated with the other players. And so Otto's had been prepared to do virtually a U-turn on him and say, no, 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 OK, I know I, know I said we, he might need one thing for his career, but actually I'm so impressed. I like the way he's fitted in. I, I don't care what I said last week. He's going to, he's going to stay for a bit and, and we're going to try and, and make sure his career doesn't get ruined by playing one or two games. Now, I like, but I like that. I like that adaptability mm. because clearly he's made an impact at a club where they need players to make impacts in training. Mm. What about Chelsea? Are we looking now, almost like conversely, that they need experience to add on and graft on to what they've got in terms of the, the young players coming through? I think they need something. It's not Chelsea's fault that the clubs around them have, have struggled to eat up the gap, but they've taken 13 points in 11, the last 11 games and still have a five-point cushion to fifth place, which firstly shows how well they did in the first part of the season, but also shows that you know they're, I think they're on course for 64 points, which is six or seven fewer than they would have needed to get in the top four last season and eight fewer than they got last season under Mauricio Sarri. So there's clearly been a, a learning curve, but I think we all knew that was, that was inevitable with young players. You know, Tammy Abraham, I think, scored six in 20 now, but he's a young striker. He will go through periods like this. Mason Mount hasn't got an assist since October, but he's a young player. He'll go through periods like that. What's great for Chelsea is that they're being allowed to carry on testing these players and persevering with them without that gap being eaten up and therefore bringing quite a lot of pressure on them. I do think they need a couple of players in January. I think Marcus Alonso is probably done and I think they would like a Ben Chilwell or whoever. Timo Werner has been yeah, mentioned. But, but, that, but that's the, the million-dollar question at Chelsea. If you're going to play one striker and Frank Lampard has been given a mandate to bring through youth... As soon as the, they are allowed to buy transfers again and they spend 60, 70 million on a, a high class forward and Tammy Abraham is immediately put onto the bench, it, it brings into question, well, if that's what we were going to do, why did we appoint the guy with the mandate for youth? Why didn't we go and get the best all singing, all dancing manager we could, which was what they've always done? So that's their, that's their conundrum. Yeah. There are two key relegation games in midweek. Bournemouth obviously will feature in one of them. They're at home to Brighton. Two goals in nine games. It's a must-win, isn't it? it there, well, obviously. But I, I, I do, I do feel Eddie Howe is is starting to talk like a man without knowing it, giving a resignation speech. Yeah, he's I saying, thought his body language at the weekend exactly. was terrible. Yeah, he's and he's saying publicly, "Can I do more? No, I can't." 
can I give more energy? No, I can't. Well, on the one hand, what he's trying to say is, yeah, I'm aware of how serious this is and I'm, I'm putting in as many hours as it is possible to put in. But at the same time, he's saying I've run out. That's effectively saying I've run out of ideas. Mm. And I think, you know, a club, when they, a club's board, when they hear that, they've, no matter how much love and residual affection there is and loyalty towards the man is, they've got to think, is he, is he sort of telling us we can come to an agreement where we part reasonably amicably and have somebody new in there. At this stage, almost just anybody who has experience of, of the lower reaches of what it's like to be at the bottom and, and struggling and has some, like Chris Hutton, for example, who, who can just bring back some solidity and, and let them climb out of it. So it all must win, yes, but in a way, I'm not sure that one win now is enough. Really, there needs to be some evidence in that win. Should they get a win, that something you know they've turned a corner. There's some tactical change. You can see something different going on. New faces, perhaps. He's had a terrible, terrible injury list. Yeah, Eddie Howe, and that—that's you know you have, I have huge sympathy for that. I don't, I don't quite know how I would cope if if I, I had if I had my plan at the start of the season and I could not execute it once. But he's, as you say, his body language and his words are indicating we're not going to see something tactically different. Yeah. If we're talking about a new manager bounce, you know, you've only got to look at Watford, who've got Aston Villa in midweek. Mm. Nigel Pearson has come in. I think it's six games without defeat. Most clean sheets in the, in the Premier League, so he's building on fairly firm foundations. Mm. What do you make of Pearson's impact? It's extraordinary, because I think with, with Pearson, and it's, a, it's an inherent... Personally, I look at him and I think he's a motivator, he's a, a man-manager. But actually, the, the reinvention has come through a change of formation because he, he's gone to 4-2-3-1, which has brought Nat Shalabar back into the team, which is great to see because he's had horrible luck with injuries and Gareth Southgate has always liked him and it wouldn't be a surprise if he was parachuted back into the England squad. But it's also given Abdullah Decore a bit more space. They were playing De La Feo centrally, he's now out wide, so him and Saar are both servicing Troydini and it... It's one of those changes that when you look at the results, you think, well, obviously, of course, that's the answer. But it wasn't the answer for, for Kike Sanchez-Flores. And no one really predicted that, that Nigel Pearson would do that. Because, we, as I say, we see him as a, as a sort of sergeant major figure, as a get the boys lined up straight and hammer home to them just how important it is they stay up. And I'm sure he is doing that as well. But that tactical change is what saved Watford's season, yeah. And I, I, I from... from in the space of two months, I now think that they're safe, whereas I, I never thought they would stay up. So, mm. all power to him, really. Mm. Ben Foster's done brilliantly. Uh, Villa have brought in Pepe Reina to try and have the same sort of effect. When you looked at the way that Aston Villa defended against Manchester City, it was shambolic, frankly. Does that give you a cause for concern? He, well... Yes, although I think I think there's a lot of goodwill, first of all, towards Dean Smith. He's such so evidently such a great bloke, isn't he? He's just just there at the club he supported as a as a kid, and you know he 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 will do anything to to help them stay up. And I also feel because it's his first job in the Premier League, we're getting the sense that we're watching a manager learn as well how to handle the 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 the, the, the obstacles that come in his path. I mean, you know, it's it's. He's not the only manager to have found it difficult to know what to do against Manchester City. Once they're in the groove, they are incredibly 
difficult. But I have seen evidence through the season that Villa do do sort of have little bounce backs from what looks like, oh, that, you know, nail in the coffin. They're not going to come back from that. So I don't, I don't, I don't feel that being hugely embarrassed against City will be the thing that means, oh, well, we all knew at that point they were doomed. I do, I do see them as a team that are sort of learning in front of our eyes, whether they'll learn quick enough or have the ability to do enough in the short term left short time left to, to make sure they don't get relegated. I'm, I'm, I think it's open to debate, but I don't... There's an energy about the team and about the manager. They don't, they don't look yet like a team where you can say they've given up, there's not enough there. There is, there is, there is flair. I think it's really impressive that Grealish, for example, somehow acts like a player playing in a team that's going for the top four. Mm. So, around him, he has a bubble. This is, life's great. This is wonderful. It, it, and while you have energy like that in the team, there's hope. Yeah. When you look at City, you know, Pep's publicly said, well, OK, the lead's gone, which is pretty much a statement of the obvious. Mm. At the weekend, is there a case to be made that he was actually out-coached by Roy Hodgson? I, th I honestly think he's in, and I don't know, but I honestly think he's in a situation now where he doesn't trust a single member of the back four that he's picking each week. He was yelling at them. Yeah, he? I mean, the, the start of the season, their first choice back four would have been Benjamin Mendy, John Stones, I'm Eric Laporte and Kyle Walker. And it would now, we're in a situation now where six months on, less than six months on, it would be a surprise if any other than Laporte were still there at the start of next season or still in the first-choice team, I think. Mm. Will Pep be there next season? Well, he says, he says the only way I will leave is if they sack me and I don't think Manchester City have any thoughts of doing that purely because I don't think they ever thought this would happen. But it, it might well depend on their Champions League performance because there's this notion that well, the league's gone, so they'll start turning it on in Europe. But it's not that easy. You don't just get to choose when and when, when and where you play well, particularly when you're playing against Real Madrid and you know potentially Barcelona, Liverpool further down the line. So a lot depends on that. But it does feel like he has he has given up in terms of not just the Premier League title, but also most of his defence, which is bizarre, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you look at the cup, potential upsets. Well, one, is West Ham losing at home to West Brom? Can that be considered an upset, <laughs> given what's going on at the moment? The one tie I'd like to look at is Brentford against Leicester. Leicester seem to be stalling a bit. Brentford as a model is a fascinating model. What do you make of it? I, I, I would say, watch. well, you know, that's a game worth watching, definitely. Um, they... They are on, Brentford are on the brink from almost nothing, which I, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to look at it and say, oh, come on, really? Are they going to, mm. they look like, at this stage, you'd put money on them at least being in the playoffs. And I don't think you'd have said that a year ago. Mm. They're, 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 they're clearly um, a club that think long-term with the new building, the new stadium. It's all take, it's all been very, done very slowly and very cautiously with, um, you know, looking, uh, consulting fans, consulting locals and so on. It's one of those clubs which builds slowly, not wham, bam, got a bit dosh, let's do something. That's good. And I think, ironically, what also stands in Brentford's favour for that tie is that they have a very clear objective to make the Premier League, whereas I think Leicester are under huge pressure to deliver a, a trophy in honour of their late chairman. And I think sometimes that sort of emotional pressure can be what, 
flips a tie so that you get an upset. Because in theory, in theory, there shouldn't there shouldn't be any pressure on the Premier League team that's in the top four. But I think in, on this occasion there will, and I think Brentford will be able to play with complete abandon because mm. they have one objective only, which is to make sure they're in those positions to make at least the playoffs. Mm. What sort of challenge is facing Brendan Rodgers? Do you think? I mean, he, he, the first part of the season was was desperately trying to manage expectation as we all, they all got very carried away. He's obviously found a stumbling block now. I don't think we can overestimate the importance of losing Wilfred and Didi. His, the, the difference in their form without him is, is night and day. And he is every bit, I think, the new, the Premier League and Leicester City's new N'Golo Kanta. He does every, he's missed to do everything. He really is. But there have been lapses, clearly. The, 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 I think they've kept one, two clean sheets in 11 or something. And Johnny Evans made a mistake against Burnley. There is a slight... Maybe a lethargy or a slight complacency. Ben Chilwell's form's dropped off a cliff. Rodgers, I think, would like better squad players, better backup players that he could then say to either say to the players that are in the team, look, you need a rest, or say to them, look, buck your ideas up because there's someone here to take your place. I think there's a pretty natural first team at the moment at Leicester, and it's difficult for those players behind it to validate to, to give effective competition for places. Maybe that's undoing them a little bit. But the reality is, is that the gap to fifth is still monumental and judge the season as a whole and there's absolutely no problem. It's, it's, it was merely managing expectation, I think. But he will, he will want a domestic trophy yeah. to show for it. And as Ali says, Leicester desperately want that too. Mm. Let's look, you know, there's, there's going to be a meeting this week about the potential to scrap replays in the fourth round of the FA Cup from next season. Congestion is a big talking point within the game. You've got Watford, for instance, who could be playing Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday this week, which is brutal. Hmm. Where does that, what does that signpost to our future? Are you looking at the FA Cup as a completely different model? Now, we've already done talk about midweek fixtures and everything else. How do you see it all shaking down, Ali? No, I, well, I, I, I unfortunately can, can see it losing its status and becoming a, a game which eventually has no replays at all and very hard to differentiate between the status of it and the romance of it compared to the League Cup. There's supposed to be a... We're one of the few nations... And overseas managers will say this when they're asked why they played, uh, you know, uh, more first-choice players than they were expected. They say, oh, because in England, the Cup really matters. And that's what we love about being in England. It was one of the things I was most looking forward to when I came to, came to this country was that, you know, where I come from, it's Spain, France, wherever, they don't take the cups very seriously, but in England you do. And if you meddle too much, you lose, you lose that. And I, I think it would be a huge shame if it became a pragmatic competition where it was, you know, it would be quite hard to differentiate. Mm. You know, what is it, does it really mean much more winning the FA Cup than the League Cup? Why have we got two cups? I could, say, I could even envisage them saying, let's scrap the FA Cup altogether and just go for one cup competition and only, only, have, only have the professional clubs in it because that's what brings in money. The, the other thing that it kind of gets my goat a little bit is that it, it feels like this change only ever, is only ever driven by, let's say, the managers of the elite clubs, those who have a vested interest. In well, they want four extra games in the Champions League to get, in, you know, yeah. basically a bloated Champions League to make more money. That's all this is about, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah. 
But if the FA could could seize control, if the FA had come out at the start of the season and said, this is what we're considering, it would be, I, I still wouldn't find it easy to stomach. But I would find it easier to stomach, let's say it's the replays thing, than we go through the rigmarole of managers moaning about it and then there's a reaction to that with, OK, we'll look at it. That just feels like ceding into those, ceding to those big clubs rather than governing it, rather than taking control of that competition. If the FA are not proud enough of that competition, then it will deserve all it gets, unfortunately, because it will look as if they're just pandering to those clubs and pandering to the Champions League as well, which is the absolute antithesis of what the FA Cup was meant to be about in the first place. Mm. And they, I think it's his short-term thinking. I, I get what you mean about the money and, oh, we want more big European glitzy, fancy games. But but what the whole product of football is is built around more than the single fixture against Barcelona. It's about caring about a match against an English club because you care about English football because of the FA Cup. Mm. It's, it's, it has knock-on effects beyond it just being that day in May. It's, it's mm. part of what makes... And there are lots of things that make English football special, but that's a big part of it, is that there's the history of that and the romance of it. And it doesn't matter who makes the final in any given year, the journey to there throws up so many beautiful stories that you don't get anywhere else. Do not stop those stories happening. Otherwise, the product that you're so worried about that brings in the dosh will cease to have the attraction. Mm. Sport, football, reflects the social mood of the times more than anything else, Dan. It's a profound issue is dementia in football. Mm. Um, and up in Scotland, they're looking at um, banning heading for kids under 12. Do you see this as a start of a fundamental change in the way the game is played? Yeah, I do, and I, I hope so. I mean, if you, were, if you were inventing football now, from scratch, with the evidence we have on head injuries, then it would not be allowed. It simply wouldn't. It, it, it jars against our expectation of football because we've all grown up with a sport that has that as a very fundamental part of it. But with the evidence we have now, there we have a duty of care and a responsibility to address things that are potentially incredibly dangerous within the game. So, yeah, I think it will start with kids not heading the ball until a certain age. But there also needs to be a frank conversation about head injuries and concussion in general, because right up to the top level, we've been incredibly blasé and, you know, almost it was almost born out of a kind of toxic masculinity of, you know, if you've got blood pouring down from your head, you're doing a good job and you care more than him because he's wearing gloves and so on and so forth. And we need to be a bit more grown up about it because we're talking about people's lives. You know, you hear someone like Chris Sutton mm. talking and this this changes and affects and ruins people's lives. So why, why, why wouldn't we want to address that? And who knows, if you make heading the ball something you don't do when you're young, you improve your technical ability mm. on the floor. I've seen so many young, you know, kids' matches where what's being shouted from the touchline is, oh, he got stuck in there, see that header, he didn't care if he was going to be knocked out, and that's what you're praised for. Yeah. How about being praised for, oh, look, look, at, look at that nutmeg, look at that close control. I don't, I don't care whether he's brave or not. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, it will, you know, it will, it has, it's not just about health, it has knock-on effects, but the style of football you play. Yeah. Well, I've never forgotten Dawn Astle promising her father, Jeff, as he lay in a chapel of rest, that she would bring him justice. She has forced the game to confront its responsibilities. It has to change now. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.